Hello everyone and welcome along to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. In today's episode we are delighted to be joined by a lady from County Mayo. She has been leader of Sinn Féin in the Senate since May 2016 and a senator for the Agricultural Panel from 2016 also. It gives me great pleasure to welcome along Rose Conway Walsh. Welcome Rose. Thank you very much. Delighted to have you here um, Rose and um, on behalf of Shared Ireland I'd like to thank you for giving up so much of your busy time today to join us. Rose, first of all, can you tell us maybe a little bit about your early years and background and what eventually brought you, I suppose, to the Senate for Sinn Féin? Well, this was my journey started when I was born in King's College Hospital in London. Uh, ah. And I moved back to Mayo when I was very yeah, young. So you're not an Irish woman at all then? Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of Irish in Britain, you know. <laughs> uh, so we moved back then as a, as a family. In fact, I come from a family of eight. Well, there was nine of us. My sister died when, uh, when we were very young. Sorry to hear that. And thank you. Um, so I have four brothers and three sisters at the moment. And uh, we... Uh, we moved back to Ballycroy in County Mayo, that's a small parish in Mayo. And uh, I grew up there and I went to school there and then I went to school, I went to a convent school then in Belmullet. So you're planning a nice stories about the nuns there? I have, either. The nuns were actually very good to me, uh, some of them. And in one in particular, I suppose, would, you know how you meet different people along the way in your life? And uh, one of them came to be, so it was Sister Rita Leonard, and she came to be principal of the convent. And she definitely had an influence um, on me and on the directions I took in life. And in fact, I have remained friends with her uh, ever since that. So I had a good time um, That's a nice with the nuns. It is. What it is amongst everything else, you know, everything that's been happening since. So I can only speak good about the education that was provided for me in Mm -hmm. the the secondary school in the convent in Belmullet. And uh, after that, then I went to college in Galway and then I went to back to London at a very early age as well, back to home. Well, I love London, you see, and I have always loved London. I, what I love about London, I suppose, is, is firstly the opportunities that it provided for me, yeah. and secondly, just the sense of you can be who you want to be in London. You and can of course, be anonymous, can I? You, you can be anonymous, you can be anonymous, but as well as that, there was a huge Irish community uh, in London at that time. I played Gaelic football. Oh, I played, I captained two different teams in what, London what, what as position? well. Well, centre field, of course. Where else is there to be on the pitch? That's, <laughs> where, all the, that's where all the best players hang out. It is. You know, we, we had a good win on uh, we had a good win on Saturday, and we're looking forward to a, a good win again in in Killarney uh, next Sunday. So Mayo football, Mayo is very uh, football is very important in Mayo. Indeed, it was very important to me. But why I think the GA is so important, I suppose it was so important for me in London, was that it created a community Absolutely. in it, in itself, yeah. and uh, you always had a lot. Of good friends. Now I tried camogie as well, but being from Mayo, camogie wasn't camogie uh, mm-hmm. wasn't my forte. So I, I stuck to the football, and I really enjoyed that. And I made the greatest of friends throughout the 32 counties and, and beyond uh, in the GA in in London. Very good, very good. So when did you move back to say Mayo permanently? Then I moved back then in uh, the late 90s. Okay. Again, after being a, a, over a decade uh, in in London. But I suppose I should say before, I, the parish of Ballycroy is interesting in itself where I lived and where, where I grew up. And that is, and it's probably informed some of my politics, because it's the parish in which Jack McNeila, 
who died on hunger strike in 1940, yeah, no. which Tony Darcy um, was from. So you always had that within the parish of sense of, and I suppose as a child you couldn't make an awful lot of sense of it, but that he was such a young man that died on hunger strike and it was for something very minor. It was for operating a, a pirate radio station uh, at the time. but. I could never understand how he was allowed and Tony Darcy was allowed to, to die on, on hunger strike. So that obviously had uh, an influence on me. Uh, and then, of course, coming from Mayo as well, we had um, Michael Gohan, mm -hmm. who died on hunger strike in, in Britain in 74. And that was followed by Frank Stagg in 1976 as mm -hmm. well. So all of that would have, you know, the discussions, even as you're growing up in a household and you're growing up in a busy household, um, would have made you think. And it certainly made me think of why... Uh, this was happening. Now, we had a lot of friends in the north as well, and we had particular friends from Linnadoon Avenue from when I was a very, very uh, young age. And again, I suppose that was the connection with the north, and it gave rise to my curiosity as a child as to why this was happening and why we were turning our backs. So it made and, you, and you're saying we as an Irish government here? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. indeed. And I suppose it made me um, grow up with a sense of sense of guilt, in a sense, of why we turned our backs. And I would probably carry that with me to this day. And I suppose not only the Irish government, but also maybe even people around me who didn't seem, it didn't seem to matter. Things that were happening much further afield seemed to matter more to mm. them, what was happening to families and to children just a few miles uh, up the road, uh, you know, in the, in the six counties. So that was all part of it. Well, I suppose that brings me on to my next point. Was Sinn Féin always going to be the party of choice for you, Rose? And um, what was it that drew you to Sinn Féin, I suppose? I, uh, not at all. I, I suppose my republicanism would have come from that. So I, I'm very comfortable in terms of my republicanism. And um, I, have, I can never remember not believing in a 32-county Irish republic. And partition never made any sense to me. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't. You know, if I can reason something and, and find a pragmatic reason for something, I think, okay, yeah. But... To this day, it's never made sense to me, and it never made sense to me as a child either how a small island like ours could be divided in the way that, that, that it was. So when I came back, for, I was always interested in current affairs, but when I came back from London, um, I started to work with the leader company, the local leader company uh -huh. in community development and business development, because that was a bit of what I had done in may, may London. May I ask, sorry for buttoning in, may I ask what you did roughly in England? Uh, well, I had a I had a varied experience there. I worked with William Hill, the bookmakers in marketing and public relations, for a number of years, okay. and I really loved that and I enjoyed that. Uh, but the marketing department was then moving from um, from London to Leeds, and I decided to leave that. Now I know John McQuarrick only died um, last yes. week, and I was That's very right. sorry to hear mm -hmm. of his passing because a colourful I would, character he was indeed, and I I did a lot of work with him and. Uh -huh. uh, with Red Rum as well, because I used to do the openings of the betting shops. Okay. So Red Rum was a celebrity in himself at the time. And I remember one day in Brixton, actually, we'd brought him into the betting shop and the, the floorboard started to give way. And this, uh, this um, the 
floorboards started to go and you had the BBC there and all of the media there and I was thinking right how do I handle this so you know you've kind of got to think on your feet as well but uh, so I did a lot of work with John McQuarrick a lot of work in the race I loved the racing fraternity and why I loved it was it's a classless fraternity so you could go to the races and the Queen Mother could be there and yeah but that's you know, why there, I, anybody why I always there. thought that it was kind of like a, perceived to be an elite sport because exactly as you mentioned the Queen Mother is big into her racing the royal family is the JP McManuses of this world people basically that have money and surely that isn't you know, not everybody can do that. Ah, uh, not at all. No, no, no. Because you get a great mix of people. One of the biggest um, uh, punters for William Hill at the time was a scrap metal dealer from East London. Okay. And like his betting was so significant that it used to have to be rung into head office every day because and you were talking at that time William Hill was worth about five hundred million, mm-hmm. um, and yet one man's figures could distort the figures for the day. Mm. So you had a really I I don't I felt really comfortable in it anyway. What I liked as well about London was I was a young Irish woman. I never felt discriminated against in any way. Mm-hmm. I was often the only woman in boardrooms and it didn't I never thought it's only looking back on it really. I never thought about it at the time. But I got every opportunity um, that I wanted. Obviously, I, I come up from a big family as well. I think it, it gives you a good work ethic. I mean, I had to work from when I was very young. Yes. Um, so I just got on with my work. Then I worked for MD Foods as well, the, the dairy company. And again, that was in business development and franchising and all that. And again, I enjoyed that uh, very much um, as well. I worked for that for a few years. And then I worked for NCH Action for Children, and that was the children's charity. Mm-hmm. And that, that's Methodist-based, that, okay. that charity. And again, that was when in events management and marketing. And uh, a, a lot of the stuff I did in that I really enjoyed as well. But that brought me in touch with... Um, the city of London and in one of the years NCH Action for Children and the British Diabetic Association were adopted as the Lord Mayor's charity mm-hmm. so that um, that was a very high profile a lot of involvement with the film industry in terms of fundraising our target for that year of the Lord Mayor's um, situation was to raise a million pounds in the year for the children's charity and the British Diabetic Association and we did that through setting up committees now the the chair of that committee was the, the, the Queen of England's right-hand man, Sir James Witherall at the okay. time. So the idea was that you would bring people from the city to St. James's Palace, you would organise various events around, whether it be in the Bank of England, the Baltic Exchange, the Tower of London and all of those things. Again, I suppose it exposed me to a lot of people that... I certainly wouldn't have met had I remained in Ballycroy or remained in, in Mayo. Yes. Uh, but again, it was all very interesting work and it led me to, well, it, it, was, it taught me a couple of different things. One thing it did t- it, uh, teach me was that money doesn't bring you happiness right. because um, you had a lot of very wealthy people and they had the same issues and the same anxieties, probably I would say more anxieties than uh, than many many of us uh, have, but it also brought me very much to treat people as individuals and as human beings. Yeah. Okay. So I would never exclude anybody from conversations or from anything. I embrace people, and I particularly embrace people with different opinions to myself because I'm of the belief that you only learn from people with different opinions to your own. So. Absolutely. 
Well, hopefully um, our listeners will learn something listening to you today. So, tell me this, Rose. What happened Sinn Féin in the local elections in the South? And I suppose what has been learned from it, and more importantly, maybe, how can you rebuild? Right. What happened to us? Um, well, it's one election, you know. Um, one election I think that you lost I half c- your yeah, country. Yeah, indeed. And that was unfortunate. And I saw the human side of that as well, in that people who had worked very hard as councillors, you know, lost their seats. Yeah. And I was very cognizant of that when the results were coming through, people who had worked so hard. But I think, obviously, you had the green um, agenda. You had climate change being very much on the agenda. That's where people's uh, minds were um, as well. There's obviously reflection of ourselves within the party and where, where we're going. Has and that I think started it's a, to happen yet? Oh gosh, it has, yes, yes. It's, it's well underway spell, spell under the, the leadership of, of Mary Lou MacDonald. Tell, tell us something. It, uh, something <laughs> of what's going to happen. I t- you know what I think a bit of it was? That we grew so fast as a party in terms of probably quadrupling our number of members only a very short period of time. Now, if you look at anything like an organisation, you would see that it takes some time to align the structures with the strategy. And I think we maybe have been a bit slow in doing that, but that's the challenge for us. And I suppose that's where we're about now. What exactly do you mean? Sometimes it takes time to align the structures with the strategy. Right, okay. So the structure of the party is set up in terms of commons and Corla Canthers and Cuigas and the Ord Corla and all that. And it takes time to bring those people on board and to fully utilise the skills and the attributes that the new people bring to the party. And I think we haven't done that as quickly as we might have. But saying that, it takes time in any organisation. So that's the big job of work for us to do now, to make sure that everybody is included and that everybody's voice is heard within the, within the party. Now, you might say externally, what does that matter? I think if you don't have alignment between structure and um, strategy, then your messaging can be mixed or your messaging certainly can be unclear. And I think that for us within the party as well, I think there, there wasn't the clarity there that we need. What do you get when you vote for Sinn Féin? Would Pader Tobin fit into what you're only after describing there? Uh, he could do. Now, the Pader Tobin situation, I suppose maybe we should talk about it in terms of the most difficult thing for me in politics was the um, referendum on abortion. Absolutely. For I everyone really, in all parties, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. But personally, I've really, really struggled with it because I don't believe in abortion. I won't ever believe in abortion for myself. Now, you might say I'm too old anyway, but I, I, I just I don't. Never I, I believe in the... I believe in the life of the unborn. I believe in in life from conception. Now, you might say, how can I reconcile that in terms of Sinn Féin's vote? I also believe that I have no right whatsoever to tell another woman what to do with her body. Um, And I would never want that right. So I do appreciate that the party gave me enough flexibility within the party. I had enough flexibility. I didn't go out and campaign for the referendum, but I did vote yes. And the reason I voted yes is because I thought I didn't have a right to 
uh, put myself in somebody else's situation. Yeah, I certainly didn't have the right to. The reason why you voted yes, would it not be fair to say because your party told you to vote yes? Not at all, not at all, no, no, no. It was a bigger... I very much reconciled it uh, with myself in that I had a job to do as a legislator. Now, just because abor- abortion is available, it doesn't mean that I or other people who feel the same way about abortion have to vote, have to, uh, have to do it. So everybody has their own personal reasons uh, for making the choices that they make. Mm -hmm. And I, as a legislator, have to respect that choice. I trust women. I trust women know what they want to do and what they need to do with their own bodies. So it was as simple as as that for me. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that answer. In a recent podcast with Shared Ireland, political commentator David McCann suggested that there was a perception Sinn Féin was an angry party. And this is not translating well with the voting public. To what extent would you agree or disagree with David's assessment, Rose? I don't think um, Sinn Féin is an angry party. I think sometimes Sinn Féin can come across as a collective, maybe, as being angry. But I, I suppose I, I'm Sinn Féin as much as anybody else is. I'm so not you're, you're a, saying I'm you're not, not an angry I'm woman? I'm not an angry person at all, at all. You couldn't get a least more angry person than me. When it, when, it, when it calls for it, yes, I can be angry, but I think you also need a, another strategy. So, you see, you see in the way that Sinn Féin is often dehumanised, I think this is the most thing that saddens me, because Sinn Féin is made up of thousands of people just like me. Give me an example Others. of how it is dehumanised. Well, it's like this, you know, some people spend their lives, you know, uh, in the whole thing of how much can I hate Sinn Féin? And, you know, I think it's such a waste of a life is that, you know, I hate them more than you. It's almost like a competition. Is that not nearly a kind of compliment to you and Sinn Féin? But... Well, it, it can be, but I just think it's such a waste of a life. Mm. You know, we, we only go around this journey once. Yeah. This is our journey. We don't get a return. It's not like booking a Ryanair ticket and say, what time do you want to return at? We're not returning. We're only heading in one direction. So to use that life in a way that, you know, you can go to your grave thinking, God, I hated them. I really hated them good, you know. I hated them more than you. It's just so wasteful. And that's why I've made my choices around joining Sinn Féin and trying to do everything I possibly could for the peace process. There was opportunities presented to me when I came back from from London to either be part of the peace process or to stand on the sidelines. And I choose not to stand on the sidelines. I choose to say, right, what can I do here? Uh, How can I be of use? What small part can I play in this and that's what I will spend the rest of my life doing both inside Sinn Féin and outside Sinn Féin is trying to bring around the type of island um, that I envisage and the type of island that I have a vision for and that's my responsibility so the dehumanizing of you know I hate you just because you're Sinn Féin or because you're Sinn Féin I will dismiss you or any ideas you might have or anything I think is a very narrow way to look at things and I suppose that's why I would encourage people People have nothing to be afraid of, no reason to be afraid of me, and certainly have no reason to be afraid of Sinn Féin. It's a cop-out. I think it's a lazy way to say, oh, we won't have anything to do with them. 
No, you might say we had, uh, you know, the elections weren't as successful as we might have liked them to have been. But at the end of the day, I think it's something like 324,000 people choose to vote for Sinn Féin. That's a lot of people. We have a responsibility towards those people, but not only towards those people, towards the wider community. So whether it's loyalists, uh, unionists, Protestants, Presbyterians, whatever, it really doesn't matter to me. It's the individual human being that matters to me and what part they want to play and it just comes down to humanity and uh, that's why I it would be very lazy for me to say well you know I can't stand all loyalists or unionists because they're different to me yes they are different to that's me that's a good word you but use I lazy yeah. yeah but I certainly you know I learn more from those people I have a lot of uh, of unionist friends and friends from all kinds of different persuasions and some of them I don't even know what religion they are mm-hmm. nor do I care what, what religion yeah. they are or what you know so people people believe in the union you know they believe in the British Empire the British Union whatever that's fine I don't but yeah. that's fine for them to do that I'm quite comfortable with all that so the next time I'm speaking to David McCann I can tell him quite categorically that you and Sinn Féin are not angry people not at all. He should meet me. He'd know I wasn't angry. And many people like me. Very good, you very know? good. Tell me this, just, um, was it, I'm assuming it was a great honour and privilege for you when you were uh, made leader of the Sinn Féin party in the Senate? Well, it was a surprise. It was definitely was a, it a surprise. Oh, it was a shock. It Who was broke a surprise. the news to you? Well, Jerry Adams, well, we, first, we had the meeting first. We had a meeting in the morning just to go through portfolios and, and, and different things. And then he said, I want to see you back at four o'clock. So I thought, okay, and I didn't think any more of it. You and thought you were getting a sack? <laughs> no, I just didn't think of it at all. I didn't know what, I didn't know what he wanted. Uh, so when I went down, he said, I want you to lead the Sinn Féin team in the Shannon. So I burst out laughing to start with. You know, I, I, in all honesty, who, who I never had thought them up to them, Rose? Um, well, we only had a couple of senators were there. I think David, we had David Cullan and Trevor O'Cloherty and we have somebody else. I know Pierce was in the Shannon before that, Pierce Doherty. Yes. So now we had come in with seven people. I didn't even know what it meant to be leader in the Shannon. I hardly knew where the toilets were at that stage in Linster House. So, okay. you know, so I... What so does it mean, by the I way, looked to be a leader? I've really enjoyed the role. It, it is shaping the team within the Shannon. Now, I have to say, we have a wonderful team. Now, you might say I'm biased, but I have led other teams in different organisations and in different things, and I have to say, this is the easiest job I have ever done. After um, I have uh, I interviewed Niall O'Donoghue there a yes. couple of months ago, and after interviewing him, I would imagine he wouldn't be the easiest to be uh, keep under control, is he? Oh, he's absolutely <laughs> one. He's a dote. He's a dote. It's, it's, I suppose it's about shaping the politics, but we have a great team, and the reason we have a great team is we have, we have Niall from the north and he brings his experiences from the short strand to Linster House um, then the others Maura Devine is, is it she was an ex-psychiatric nurse you Park McLaughlin who had huge experience in his portfolio from, from Donegal in, in Justice from the last time you Paul Gavin who comes from a trade union background um, and now I've probably left somebody out have I 
Oh, Finton, of course. Finton has done huge work around Finton Warfield, around LGBT rights and all of that. So we make up a really good team. Mm -hmm. And it's not a, a competitive team by any means. We, we all fit together. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, it, I, I don't believe in micromanaging people or anything like that. They're all very responsible, very dedicated people. And it's an absolute pleasure for me to lead the team in the Shannon um, uh, with those guys and, uh, and with Maura. And we have good fun because that's the other thing I suppose I would bring to it. I don't believe in this, you know, the longer the face, the better the Republican. You can have you can have good fun, you can have good banter, you can have, you know, you can be serious about yeah. the work that you do, but you don't take yourself serious in yeah. politics. I think anybody who takes themselves serious in politics, it's a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, we're, we're what is it, 98% water? So basically, mm. we're, we're all cucumbers with anxiety, you know? So <laughs> the mere fact that we're human beings make us quite ridiculous. Yeah. But you try to do the best job that you can and... I love the role in the Shannon, I have to say. Now, I could say at this stage, I, I've done it. I would really love to get into the doll. I think I could do really good work that was in my the doll. That's the seat in Mayo. But I am on the Finance Committee as well as the Agricultural Committee, the Joint Oireachtas Finance Committee with, with uh, Piers Doherty. And I love that because economics would be my background and my academic background is, is, is economics. What's the process to... Um get into the Doyle from Senate? I have to get people in Mayo to vote for me, you know, uh, so I suppose I work as hard as I can in the constituency and all of that. It's a difficult constituency to break through. I ran the last time for the last election in 2016. I was about 1,500 votes short at that time. What was the um, quota? The quota was... What was the quota? I should know what the quota was. I only know that I was that short. If I had got, I got about six and a half thousand, seven thousand votes. Mm. If I had got nine thousand, right. I would have been, I would have been so elected. So you were two thirds there. I was more than, yeah, yeah. I was more than two thirds there. But um, Mayo has very mm. traditional voting patterns in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and I think that's probably something we should talk about in terms of rural Ireland and rural Ireland's civil war politics because I think there's a correlation between that and the north and the absolute need for a proper reconciliation process uh -huh. because I think rural Ireland has suffered um, because people were so bound by civil war politics uh -huh. yeah. and the horrors of what happened uh, within the civil war that they're still tied uh -huh. to that so any government looking knew they could be absolutely predictable uh -huh. even you know in the same of the orange and green maybe around how people would vote yeah. so it meant that they didn't have to invest in those areas because they didn't have to influence people's voting behavior correct and that's what I don't want to see happening yeah. in the north. Yeah. I want to see the the investment decisions being made for the right reasons yeah. in it. So, you know, I know we've strayed off a bit on track no, there, no, but no, that's no. all relevant to getting the seat of mayor. But yeah. I would love to be in, in Dáil Air and, and I think I could do a really good job of representing rural Ireland there and representing the people of Mayo there. And that's what I'm dedicated to and committed to. Excellent. Just on a subject that... Um, you were discussing there, I suppose, you know, you're quite right. We could speak here for a week and still not even do it justice, but like, you know, the real network, if you go outside any of the major cities, is basically non-existent. Mm. Never mind going into the north. Mm. It is really non-existent there. You know, the infrastructure for people, um, you know, the jobs, the farming community, what entices 
foreign investment into this country. Surely we have to put the nuts and bolts in place first, the basic things. And, you know, Donegal is long known as a forgotten state or a forgotten county, you know. Um, there is a responsibility on the Irish government and I suppose you as a representative to try and ensure that people in rural communities do get the best service that they possibly can. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the biggest concerns I have is the disparity between um, the regions and what's happening in Dublin. Mm. So I'm in Dublin, say, three days a week, and you see it, it bursting at the seams mm-hmm. um, in terms of homelessness, housing, yeah. and all of those things that demand. So you have the move of the population there. And the only way to address that is by proper, sustained investment in the regions. So it's investment in roads, it's investment in rail, it's investment in infrastructure, and it's also prioritising agriculture but, and but the whole farming communities. The, the Garda stations have been closed, post offices have mm. been closed, you know, public houses have been closed, mm. you know, doesn't doesn't look very bright, does it? No, you see, and it's symptomatic of um, what has happened, because if you don't have the investment in these areas that will bring jobs and enterprise into the areas, then you have forced immigration. Mm-hmm. Like I had to immigrate mm-hmm. and like people still have to immigrate. So then you end up with whole um, areas where there is no young population because yeah. people have to move away to get their careers, to, 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 to get work and, and all of that. So if you haven't got the infrastructure there, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and that's what I, st- I, think, I still think it's not too late, even though we've been savaged by immigration. Uh, but there has to be a redirection of government policy um, in that. And I don't see signs of it coming, and that disheartens me. And that's why I think there's a personal responsibility as well on people who, who keep voting for, say, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael without looking at the policies. Mm-hmm. Like, forget about the parties. Look at the policies, you know. Has Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael delivered for rural Ireland? We've had nearly 100 years of them now. No, they haven't. So do we think by voting for them just one more time they're going to deliver? No, they're not. Because the policies of privatisation and centralisation work against rural Ireland mm-hmm. and in all, on all of its parts. So why would you continue uh, to do that when people are voting against their own best interests? But I think you find that in the North as well. You know, if you even look in terms of people voting orange and green, they're, they're voting against their own interests. And, and so there's a whole psychology, I think, behind it. I think we need more political psychologists to work out um, why people do those things and why people uh, don't have the equality of opportunity and maybe why people don't reach kind of self-actualization to be in a position to say, right, okay, I'm really going to examine the policies of this party. Do they serve me well? Are they going to serve my children well? Are they going to serve my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren well? We need more thinkers around it. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why I joined Sinn Féin in the very first instance. And you asked me earlier on why I joined Sinn Féin when I came back from London. There was two reasons. Um, the first reason was I want to be part of the peace process. But I found within Sinn Féin there were deeper thinkers than anywhere else. You had the likes of Pat Doherty, Jerry Adams, Mark McGuinness, uh, Mitchell McLaughlin, Rose Dugdale. Um, Declan Kearney, and now I've named some and I'll have left others out. But what struck me about it was these people are thinking. These people are thinking not just for the present, they're thinking for the future. 
and that's what inspired me to join Sinn Féin uh, as a party as well. You mentioned immigration there. I suppose and that brings me on to my next topic here. In October of this year, Rose, there will be a referendum on the extension of presidential voting rights to Irish citizens in the north and further afield. Can you outline the reasons why you and Sinn Féin are in favour of this? Well, my personal reasons are that I was a part of the diaspora uh, myself uh, and I would have loved, loved to have they had the opportunity to vote. Um, and I think particularly now where you have communications and all of that, people, people who are abroad and Irish people who are abroad that I know very much stay in touch with what's happening in Ireland and what's happening in Irish politics. And they need to be provided with an opportunity um, to have their say. Some of them will choose to vote, others will choose not to vote. But why should we deny them that right? Why should we deny Irish citizens in the North um, th their vote? You know, we can have a president like we had in Mary McAleese from the north, but we cannot have, but we can't, you know, we don't allow people to vote. We should never, ever, ever be afraid to allow people to have their say. We live in a democracy. What are we afraid of? Some of what has been written recently, and I'll say, Kerry wrote it absolutely nonsensical, scurrilous article in the Irish Times that really hurt me as somebody who was part of the diaspora. The other thing is that um, my brother, say, who lives in Ballycroy at the moment, he lived in America for years in New York. So he has dual citizenship, he's American citizenship as well. He can vote for the president, who, who the president of the America is going to be. So we have him to blame yet, for something, do we? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't just blame him. But then I have my brother in, in Birmingham and my other siblings who are, are throughout Britain. And they cannot vote for a president in Ireland. So it doesn't make sense. And in all countries, in, in most all countries throughout the, throughout the world, uh, citizens can vote for who their president are. So it doesn't make any sense. So I do want to commend the work of many others, you know, like the, the Irish Votes for Abroad and our own, I suppose, Billy Lawless in the Shannon uh, as well, who's representing the diaspora. I know he's doing really good work around there. And certainly us as a party um, are very much uh, want to have... Where do um, we draw the line, say. I suppose, with who can and who cannot vote? And well, I suppose, just when I'm on that... How would you counter the argument some people are making in regards to the referendum that there should be no representation without taxation? I know, I think that's a nonsense. I think the very fact that your um, citizen gives you um, basic rights, gives you an innate rights that comes with being a citizen of, of, any, uh, of any country, those people have... Um, contributed hugely. They've contributed in the first instance by actually leaving, leaving the country, you know, and not being dependent on the state here. But they've contributed in many ways, even locally in terms of our own, in terms of our hospital, in terms of our infrastructure and all of that, they've contributed hugely. They've contributed hugely all around the world. So are we saying, you know, your voice isn't important? That's why I have problems with... Um, you know, the diaspora being treated like um, a whole cohort of individuals that we can shake down when we want something. Mm -hmm. And yet we're saying, well, yeah, we want your money, we want you to invest, but we're not going to allow you to have your say. It's nonsense. So, so I'm perfectly aligned with the party in terms of that, with um, um, Sinn Féin, obviously, is a big advocate for that. But citizens in the North, like, why... <laughs> 
Why should we say that Irish citizens in North cannot have a say? Again, some of them will choose to vote, others will choose not to, but we shouldn't take that right away from them. It's their right as a citizen to be able to vote. Would you see this referendum in October as being important in regards to a possible future border poll? I mean, would it show you an indication or can the two not be compared? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the two of them together, no, because there would be people who would vote in a presidential election who may not agree with the 32-county republic, mm-hmm. and that's their prerogative. Um, so, no, I wouldn't. I would take this very much as, a, as an individual referendum. Now, I just the, the issue of a border poll, and I don't like it being called a border poll, and the reason I don't is that I'm from Mayo, so I'm not from a border county, uh, it's a referendum on Irish unity. Again, it's asking people, um, do they want to have um, unity? Do they, do, they, do they want to continue with partition or do they want something else? Which and we will touch on in a little mm. moment. Um, we recently again done a podcast interview, Rose, with Senator Ian Marshall, who is an independent, which I'm sure you know Ian pretty well at this stage. And Ian is from a unionist background. Ian recently said it is hypocritical of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil to refuse to enter government with Sinn Féin while expecting the DUP to work with the party in Stormont. Is Ian right here? And can you see a path into a coalition government with either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil in the future? That's a very big question. Now, I do obviously know Ian and work with Ian in the Shannon, and I think he brings something... Um, very different to the Shannon. He's very comfortable in his unionism. I suppose the first thing I learned from him was I thought that uh, that people in South Armagh were all Republicans. I didn't realise there was any unionists in South Armagh. So, so listening to him about growing up in South Armagh, I think is interesting in, in in itself. And what he says in terms of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Um, you know, this dis- disdain for Sinn Féin and we don't want them in government here. Like, what he says is correct, I think. But sometimes I think part of it is, you know, they see a unionist in the Shannon and they think, well, and we'll tell him what we want to hear. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell him we don't like Sinn Féin. So we have something in common, you know. I think Ian is much more broader and open-minded than that than to, than to say blanket, everyone from Sinn Féin is bad, Everybody, every unionist is good, you know? So I think we would share that openness in terms of, of that. Now, in terms of what he says about, of course he's right. You know, why? You know, this thing of Sinn Féin need to be in government in the north, but no, they're not quite good enough to be here. Just not yet. Maybe five, maybe ten years, you know. We'll kick it down the road another bit. Like, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So, um, they forget that Sinn Féin have such a big mandate across the island. You know, we are the only 32-county party. That doesn't make us special or different. Well, it does make us different, I suppose. But... It doesn't make us right in, in everything, but we are there. But Michael, um, Michael so t- and Colm are now going to run you for that title. But that's good. I welcome the fact that Fianna Fáil are trying to organise in the north. Now, I, I think some of their attempts to date have been um, well, probably an entertainment value in it, you know, and watching some of it. 
but Are certainly... Are referring to Saoirse McInnesby here, no? Well, not to her as an individual, no. because I, do, I don't know her no, as no, an individual, but... some of yeah. the, the attempts that have been made. But we, we, want, we want all parties to be, um, and parties that haven't even yet been thought up of, to be um, 32 county yeah. parties, you know, across the island, yeah. and to do what they're there. So there's no problem with that. But they need to get over this thing, you know, of... Uh, Sinn Féin are fit to be in government in the north within they're okay with the DUP but not down here I like I suppose the one word that did stand out for me in Ian's remarks was hypocritical well they are hypocritical there's no other way you can uh, you can describe it mm-hmm. um, they're they're confused I think as well they're confused so I think they need a bit of clarity around it themselves in terms of what they want uh, what they want for Ireland and let's see what vision they have for our island as a whole. What vision they have so that everybody can be included. Do they really know what a republic is? Or do they know what being a republican means? I'm not so sure. But let's see their vision and let's see what um, you know what they um, are going to do into the future. They haven't inspired me to date anyway. Otherwise I might be a member of, of one of them. But they Certainly they haven't inspired me in terms of Irish republicanism or in terms of very many other things. We just talked about infrastructure and investment and other policies, you know. So. Okay, thanks for that, Rose. Tell me this, what's required to create a truly shared Ireland, in your opinion? Or in Sinn Féin's opinion? Equality. You see, for me as a republican, there would be no joy whatsoever in us achieving Irish unity if it meant that... Uh, uh, loyalists or unionists or any other people were to be left behind. If I was to be somehow more equal than a loyalist living in East Belfast, then none of this would have been worth it. None of my work over the last 20 years would have been worth it. We need equality. We need to have human rights across the board. And that's why I think even in terms of getting the institutions right in the north, and we definitely, and certainly I want to see them up and running, and I know Sinn Féin do as well, and we're making every effort there as we did last February, 12 months, to get the institutions up and running. But it must be based on rights. So if you're talking about the right to the Irish language, for instance, it's not just Irish language, of course, it's the right to your identity. So it's the right to my identity as an Irish Republican. It's the right to a unionist identity as recognising that they want the union or whether it be the royal family or what, whatever else it might be. They had, that's their right in the same way as it's my right. So it's about, it's about us all living together in a place where people feel equal, where people have equality of opportunity. And I think that is huge because if we are to leave people behind then it would be a major, major mistake, and I think we would pay the price for it in the future. So it's about that equality of opportunity and how we how we create that. It's also about how we deal with the legacy issues, and I think that's probably one of the most challenging thing there is uh, for all of us, and that will take extra effort right across the board to do that. So having an, an island where where people are free to be what they want to be, whether that's a Republican, a Unionist, a Nationalist in the broader sense, because I think we have to be a bit careful around it, some of the nationalism that's coming out of Britain at the moment, but also how we can create something where we can determine our own futures 
And I think that is even more important now when we see of late. Do we want Westminster? Do we want the likes of Boris Johnson making decisions for us? I certainly don't. And I think any right-minded person across this island, regardless of where they've come from uh, or where they're at, cannot seriously want that uh, for us. So I want to see us all getting together and working out and shaping the type of an island that we want for ourselves and we want for future generations. And I do think that that can be done if we have the conversations, the right conversations. The conversation is the key Mm. word as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Thank you. Okay, Rose, given that most mainstream commentators think we need a new Ireland forum or a unity institute, I know you don't like that word, but to analyse what is required for a new Ireland so we don't make the same mistakes as Brexit. What would you say to those who say now is the wrong time to be calling for a new Ireland border poll, call it what you want, given that none of this is yet in place? And because the Brexit debate is still ongoing and is still a very live issue, unfortunately, how would you respond to any of that? Well, you see, if you don't call for it, you don't have the conversation. We'd maybe not be even having this conversation if we didn't call for it. Obviously, there's provision within the Good Friday Agreement. But, you know, this thing of not yet, not yet. I think to have the conversation, you need to almost create a certain amount of discomfort. And I understand that there is um, or there can be a, a discomfort among unionists or loyalists around even discussing it. So it's about how you create the space for that conversation. I'm really heartened by the civic nationalism and civic unionism um, conversations that are happening and the gatherings uh, that are happening around that to create the space. There was one happened in the Waterfront Hall in January of this year. That's right, yes. And then there was one in, um, where was it, Newry? recently, in Newry mm-hmm. recently as well. Now, I tuned into that as well. I thought there was some very interesting conversations um, around that. Paul Gosling yes. and people like yes. Professor yeah. uh, Colin Harvey. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. And I think they all have very interesting things to, to say um, in that conversation. So I think it's about each community's having the conversations and then having combined conversations. How you do that and you create a safe structure for going forward. I don't think it needs to be too structured but I do think that the Irish government have a part to play here and I think and we have we have asked for this before that um, the, the Irish government here would set up a cross party, um, almost like a cross party committee if you like, of looking at the future of our island and then you invite in witnesses from whoever wanted to be part of that conversation, that you have a safe space to have it in. So I think that may be the way forward. I think it can be done if there's a willingness there. In fact, I think it will be done. I feel confident that it will be done. Uh, but you, everybody needs to be part of this conversation, you know. Yeah, because uh, there, there's, there's no point in people, you know, sitting talking in silos um, to themselves. And I suppose as Republicans, we realised that a long time ago. I remember Jerry Adams saying it years ago. We got to get out of this thing and just talking in rooms to ourselves because you're preaching to the converted. Exactly. But I'd, I, we need the mistake. I think that Brexit was made is that there wasn't enough information there. So yes. we need to be able to say to people 
what, uh, say, a national healthcare strategy for Ireland would exactly look like. Right. And health is a thing that comes up time and time again. Well, it's something that so, affects everybody regardless of who or what you believe in. It is indeed. And I can see why in the North, and I can see why when I came back from, from London and I went to the doctor here and had to pay you know, 40, 50 euro to go to the doctor. And then I went to get my prescription and they said 80 euro and I nearly fainted because <laughs> I never paid any more than 540. I think it was 520 or 540 for a prescription but, but in London and I never had to pay to go I'm to the doctor. I'm just going to interrupt you here and I want to, I suppose, home in on yeah. what you're only after saying. And I think it's only fair to home in on this because mm. this is one of the arguments, now it's a very flippant one, that some anti- United Ireland people would say, oh, well, sure, we don't want to pay for our GP and health service in the South. So you are clearly saying here that it costs money mm. to go to see your mm. doctor. Mm. Is that your vision of a new Ireland? Can that be changed? And what you know, what needs to be done? Oh, I certainly think it can be changed. And I think, um, you know, access and equality of access to health care is a by vital human right. Now, how do we do that? We invest 15, 16 billion here in healthcare uh, each year. Uh, that is a huge amount of money. I think if we were to combine our resources across the island, we could have a state-of-the-art um, health service that would serve, like we're only six, six and a half million people across the island. Mm -hmm. You know, if you contrast that to some of the cities even in, in Britain, yeah. like, I think something like 30 million, is it, in, in, uh, in, in London? I thought you it was higher even, but yeah, I get your yeah, point. So we can, create, we can create a wonderful health service yeah. here um, and we can exchange between, you know, between North and South, the good practices and all of that, and we can have healthcare free at the point of access, and we can have the best expertise. We have an awful lot of expertise in healthcare across the island. There's an awful lot of money wasted as it is in the moment. Like having two health services as well on an island this size. Two place forces. Ah, yeah, sure. Two it infrastructures. It, it doesn't make. Two education yeah. systems. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. But you see what we could say. We could say, okay, Sinn Féin will go with um, um, a, a prescription of what a, a healthcare system might look like. I don't. We have the shape of that, and and we have ideas for it. And even in in Sláinte Care, in we are part of that in terms of the ten year strategy for for the South. But I would like to see everybody involved in that conversation as well, because I may not know what somebody living in East Belfast or Tyrone or whatever might want from a health service. So we we shouldn't be too prescriptive. Yeah. But but certainly people need to know when they are going to go out and vote on a referendum in Irish unity, they need to know what they're signing up for. And I have a responsibility, Sinn Féin has a responsibility, but civic unionism, civic nationalism, the DUP, the Alliance, all of the other parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, have an equal responsibility as well in making sure that people know what they're voting for and what they're going to get. You know, this nonsense of that we had in Brexit of, you know, the buses and so many million would be put into the NHS if you vote uh, if you vote for Brexit mm -hmm. we have to learn from that and I certainly think as a party we uh, have learned from that but and that goes right across then the education system and uh, as you said policing and, and everything else as well. I think it's only fair to just to throw in um, to balance out uh, while you currently pay for your doctor in the south and you don't in the north 
Um, I believe if you're unemployed in the north you get something like 79, 80 pound a week, but I believe in the south you get, what is it, 180 something euro? No? Yeah, depending on, on how old you are. So, um, yes, you, you do, there, there is differences there yeah. as well. And, I, you know, I don't think there should be differences. Again, I think it should be, you know, <clears throat> what we very much advocate, the living wage, that everybody should have a living wage. There needs to be a social welfare system there that is uh, that can be accessed by people who really need it. Mm. But I think in terms of getting people to employment and enterprise and creating quality of opportunity has to be our main aim across across the island so that people aren't left behind. But a social welfare system is very necessary too. I know you did slightly touch on it there, but maybe you could expand slightly if you don't mind, Rose. What are Sinn Féin doing, if anything, to create an up-to-date white paper document for unity? And what input are you getting from other parties, including unionism? I suppose that is that it's been done at different stages. I mean, we, we've had our documents before in terms of, you know, towards a republic. Um, so there is ongoing work in relation to that. But we can't have the conversation with ourselves. And, you know, we, there is conversations happening, you know, right across the board. But I think those need to be brought together more. So there's individual conversations and small groups of conversations happening. But that's why I talk about something like, um, you know, having a cross-party committee where people can have these conversations out in the, in the open. There's nothing to be feared uh, from these conversations. Would you admit that the perception is out there? especially from the Loyalist Unionist community, that if Sinn Féin is seen to be leading this call, then it becomes a toxic issue. Well, it could be in... If you, you see know, it from I their can't, perspective, that Yeah, is. and I try to see it from their perspective. They have nothing to fear from Sinn Féin. But Loyalists have that. nothing to... <laughs> but it would be because it's true and because I mean it. They really don't, you know. Uh, but I also realise that perception is as important as reality. They obviously perceive that they have something to fear in engaging in the first instance. I thought, you know, in terms of the leadership, say, that was shown by Martin McGuinness, even when he, he um, shook hands to the Queen and all of that, you know, and I thought his statement on just because I shake hands with the British Queen doesn't mean that I'm less of a Republican or she's less of a Royalist, you know. We can come from dis different positions and we can be who we are and be proud to be who we are. But at the end of the day, it's about what we are working on and what we want to create. So. The same things matter to us. The same things matter to a mother in the Shankill Road as the dude does to me in Mayo. Mm -hmm. You know, what do I want for my children? I want good, I have two teenage boys. I want a good education for them. I want educational opportunities for them. I want them to do what they choose to do in life. I want them to have the job that they want to have. I want them to be able to afford a home. I want them to have access to health care. Um, I want them to fulfill their potential. Now, I don't believe that a mother in Shankill Road wants any different for her children. Correct. So we have all these things in common. So those are the things that we need to work on. And we can learn from each other in how we shape the type of society that will deliver that for us. And that's why I would encourage people to get involved.
And I say you don't look old enough to have two teenage children. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's the light <laughs> under the tree. <laughs> Tell me this. What are the main problems our farming and rural community face? And what needs to be done to address them? Oh, my God. Mercosur. Mercosur. How, long, how long have you got? <laughs> it's all about Mercosur now, as it is at the moment, and the, the beef crisis. Um, there's huge problems. There's huge, prob- there's huge problems. In, okay, if I just look at beef say to start with because mm-hmm. that's suckler cows is the, the, the main um, farming in where I come from and you have the beef industry worth about two and a half billion and yet farmers are getting such low prices Yeah. so that is a big problem where's the money going to um, you know what's an operation that prevents farming from being uh, viable because Farming in rural areas is not viable as it is at the moment. So that is a, a problem. Is and we it, did a report and we did a Neuroctus report in it there recently. Is farming well. still the backbone of Irish community? Oh, it is, yes. You yes, so, yes. If you were to take the farming out of rural Ireland, then what are you left with? Very little. Because you have the mo- you know money that's spent within the community and all of that. Now you can say in terms of direct payments and all that, if you were to take them out of it, you know, where would it be? I think it's about as well being, and I think in terms of climate change and all that, we, we need to look at the whole public good of farming and where, you know, how we then, how we how we make that pay and how we make it pay for farmers and I think that we can do that so we need to look at the beef Mercosur in the deal that's been done I think the government has sold us down the swanee on that I think they're now talking about doing an impact assessment but this Mercosur deal has been going on for nearly 20 years and we have said in our own Matt Carthy who has fought very very hard against this in, in, in Europe and indeed Martina Anderson and the other MEPs who have fought hard against it because we knew what was coming down the line we also knew in terms of Nice and Lisbon in terms of the qualified majority voting and giving away our rights in Europe and that's why we as a party uh, stood against some of these treaties we would have been accused as being anti-EU we're not anti-EU but we need to critically examine what's coming out of the EU and we're paying the price now in terms of it but in terms of farming as well I want to see you know more cohesion between North and South in terms of farming I met with I was up at the Balmoral show I met with uh, some of the Ulster (coughs) farmers unionists as well they have the same issues and challenges as, as we have in the South albeit I'd say they have the better land and they needn't worry we're not going to take the land back of them which which some of them will say to me uh, but, they, but they do have better land say than you have in the in the west of Ireland and and that's fine but for farming and agriculture as home is important to us Brexit is bad and Brexit is bad for farming and that's why I was delighted to see the Ulster Farmers Union coming out and standing up and saying no this is not good for agriculture in the same way as the business community have done that as well so but I think we can work it and I think we should work more together um, across the island in terms of farming and agriculture, agriculture and developing that um, uh, going forward to make sure that it remains sustainable. Okay, we're approaching the hour mark, uh, Rose. So just before we go, I'll give you one last opportunity to sell to our listeners why Sinn Féin are the party that can lead us into a new future, a new Ireland, and why everyone should be voting for them. Well, because I think that Sinn Féin don't have all the answers. 
Uh, but I think Sinn Féin can play a big part in this and have played a big part for years in the whole question of having a vision for Ireland. Look at even some of the books that Jerry Adams wrote years ago. It was no, not the Kukri book. No, I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> um, but the other books, and I think in that, if you, if you look at any of those that were written years ago, you can tell kind of the vision that we, that, that, that we have. We have a vision for this island. And we want to share that vision with people across communities um, throughout, throughout the island. But we want to hear what others are, are saying as well and what it will mean to other people. So we will play a part in that. And I think the reason sh people should vote for, for Sinn Féin is because we have the drive and we have the vision and we have the ambition for it. And there's absolutely nothing whatsoever to be feared and you're not angry. from Sinn Féin. <laughs> I'm not angry, no, no, not, not at all angry. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm quite excited about the future and I'm quite excited about what we can achieve together um, for this island of ours uh, and I think we can do things different and we can make things different and we can make a huge difference in people's lives um, but we all have to be part uh, of that journey. Very good. Who do you admire? I admire, I admire people who think do you come across and I admire I do I do I also admire people who are I like people who are comfortable in their own skin people who are what they are and um, who have a rationale for that so give, give I, me an example but not somebody within your own party of who I admire mm -hmm. well I'll tell you the person I really do admire as well is somebody like Colin Parry okay I met Colin Parry, who was Jonathan Parry's dad, yeah. several years ago in London. I met him actually at a conference with Martin McGuinness and he came up to talk to me and I talked to him twice during that day. And I met somebody who was, who had obviously gone through an awful time, an awful time. And as a parent, I could really mm -hmm. identify with that the worst possible time any parent can go through. And yet he had reconciled it in himself. And he was determined to work for a better future and for peace. And what he has done in terms of the foundation himself and his wife and family have set up, um, I thought was tremendous. Mm -hmm. And he, so he's a person I have admired since the day that I met him. Um, and I'm, I admire others as well. I mean, I go to Bally, Bally Murphy and the Bally Murphy inquest. Yeah. I admire those families. Mm -hmm. They have waited nearly five decades for an inquest. Mm -hmm. The family of Joan Connolly, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so there's no, I, I would never be in awe about famous people, if you like. Yeah. But human beings like that. I think I came across in your choice of answer, to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah. Very good. I also admire the likes of Bernie McGuinness, mm -hmm. who I think is a very special person yeah. as well. Um, and I, I just think there's something very serene and gentle and thoughtful about her. So I meet people in the course. I admire my mother, you know. She reared us all, <laughs> managed us all, and, uh, you know, it, so. I wouldn't restrict it to very, anybody. Very good, honest answer. Thank you for that. Final question, you'll be glad to hear. If you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, Rose, who would they be and why? 
Well, actually, and I've probably given you the answers to that already. Colin okay. Parry would be one of them. Okay. And I would, because I would like to have further conversations with him, and I just really ad admired what he was trying to do and his whole, his just his whole being. Um, Bernie McGuinness would be another one, because... I really do admire her. Please, as a, please as a tell woman. me that you're going to invite me as a third, because I'd love to be <laughs> listen to them two people. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But uh, you know, I've had conversations, I suppose, with both. And you know, when you really enjoy being with somebody and spending time with 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 somebody, so both of, of those I would. There are many others. The other one I would, I suppose, as well. And and, and this person is obviously passed, and that would be Joan Connolly in herself. There's something that resonates me about with me about that woman and it could be I mean the horrific death that she had in being shot in the face in Belly Murphy but she had eight children and maybe because I'm from a family of eight myself and the children were sent then to different parts of the island and I know at least one of them or a couple of them were sent to Sligo Eski which was near me and all of that and I I just, just watching the Belly Murphy inquest and what's happening there, for me it is all about her and her as a mother and the way that she was left and what she must be thinking as a mother. So she is one person. I think that answer should resonate with most and, yeah. and that's not to say, because I think we need to be very careful about a hierarchy of victims, mm -hmm. the pain and the suffering of the conflict and the challenges for all of us around how we process that pain and suffering and how we listen to the families and how we support the families right across the board, mm -hmm. whether they be loyalists, unionists, mm -hmm. whoever they may be, people's human pain and suffering is the same and there isn't a hierarchy of victims. but. They would be my three people that I would like to spend time with. Thank you very much. And on that note, Rose Conway Walsh, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Keep up your great work. I'd like to thank you on behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners, and we wish you nothing only success and good luck moving forward. Thank you very much. Thank you.